Welcome to the NYU Journalism Podcast. I'm Hanna Sekainen, and with me in the studio is Morgan Sykes. Today we have a selection of stories exploring identity. Specifically, these people have been finding ways to create space for themselves in challenging situations. Our first piece is about misadventure and being a woman in a male-driven world. And it's produced by my co-host Morgan. How did you first meet Kat Parloff? Yes, the world of mountain biking brought us together. A friend tried to get me to take her on a trail ride over the holidays in my home state of North Carolina, and that didn't work out. But we got to connect here in the city where she told me all about being an aerobatic pilot. What's that? Aerobatic pilots are the people that fly those little planes upside down in formation in the sky. And apparently they are made out of fabric. They're very tiny. And you feel every motion that they make when they're turning upside down and doing twists and crazy stuff. Okay, like that sounds so scary and absolutely amazing. Can you share the story of how you got stranded in Death Valley? Oh my God. Okay, so it was Fourth of July. It was. This is a. This is a serious story. I planned this really ambitious trip to go from California all the way up to Idaho in my friend's uh, little Piper Cup. Our first stop was going to be in this place called the Chicken Strip. The reason why it's called the Chicken Strip is because so many people chicken out landing there because it's right up into a mountain. And we landed just fine. Um, parked the airplane. Tied it down with these giant clamps, metal clamps. And then we saw kind of in the back that there was a possible storm. The storm radically shifted direction and advanced at us at a rate of 60 miles an hour and came so quickly and so violently that, I mean, we didn't even know what it was. I, I ran over to the airplane because my buddy was screaming at me. He straddled the tail and lifted it up in the air so that the airplane's angle of attack changed and the airplane wouldn't fly. And I was holding down on the wing when another gust came on. This was a huge sandstorm, so you can't even see anything. It's like throwing rocks at us. And it lifted the airplane out of the tie downs, turned it in the air and forced it into the ground, completely totaling it. And I mean, I've never been in an aviation mishap before. I mean, it threw me, you know, pretty hard. And we decided that the only rational thing to do at that point was to drink whiskey. The next day we wake up and we have no idea, you know, how the heck we're going to get out of there. You know, the ELT, which is the emergency transmitter beacon, uh, went off. And so we knew that people were aware that we were stranded. But we didn't know how to how long it was going to take. There was no shelter. And so the the actual airstrip is next to this oasis. We were looking at it and we saw a little truck sort of drive in our direction. It took him like 20 minutes to get to us. And these two dudes got out wearing Speedos. And one of them said that his name was Lizard Lee and the other one was Desert Dan. And they live out in the oasis. And if we'd like, we can go and hang out with them because they have springs there. And so at first we were like, oh, we're okay. We'll wait for the ranger. But I think quickly we realized that the temperatures in Death Valley get really hot in July. I mean, to a point where, like, I thought I was going to faint. So we ran over to the oasis and Desert Dave was sitting naked in a little spring pool there and invited us to join him for some tuna tacos, (laughs) which we did. And we just drank beers with Desert Dan and, and, and hung out in this oasis for five days waiting for the rangers to show up. There was some weird shit there. Like, 
circular spirals in the middle of the desert leading to an old car seat that's used for watching the stars or wild donkeys there's a there's a there's a whole thing of wild donkeys out there and they live and they um are very personable actually and they just they 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 are herds of them kind of hang out there at night we would watch lights in the middle of the desert not knowing what they were that was truly the most powerful experience I've ever had in my entire life because you, being on a desert oasis in the desert is a lot like being stranded on a desert island in the middle of the ocean like you cannot leave like it is so inhospitable that it is so hot that you can't venture more than 10 feet off of the island and so you're kind of forced to sit there and just be okay with time passing and whatever happens to you is going to happen to you and the the winds that come through the valley are so strong and they come on so quick that it feels almost like as if it's like a menacing presence. It's like Burning Man, but more intense. You know, like people try to experience it when they're there because I think it brings them this isolation and, you know, allows them to feel kind of the desert life. Well, it's a lot more intense when you're out there, just the two of you and Desert Dave. And then finally, eventually, the ranger came and got us out. It took eight hours to drive out of there. But yeah, their plane was completely totaled. It was the only time I've ever seen their plane totaled. It actually really changed me as a pilot because I think you're always afraid of something like that happening. So when it happens to you, I found it to be dangerous because now I know what a broken airplane looks like. I can imagine that as a possibility. And so now that I'm imagining it as a possibility, like I'm, I have all these silly things, like I'm afraid of white and blue airplanes and I'm buying an airplane that's white and blue. <laughs> and it's like, it's this, oh, well, you know, maybe it's, it's you, you can't allow thoughts of, of the possibility of a crash to enter your mind. And once it happens to you, like kind of like dealing with the psychological impact on your flying, I think is pretty tricky. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how being a woman has affected your experience or opportunities. I I tend to stay away from marketing myself as a female pilot. Like, I'm just a pilot. And the fact that I'm female is a fact. And I think that it definitely impacts who I am. But I haven't yet declared myself a female pilot and there are a few women in the industry who do and I don't fault them for it Um, but I think it becomes a fine line with other women um, because you want to encourage them and empower them you don't want to feel like you are a novelty that you know is a pinup on a on a a calendar you know that dudes think is hot like that is not the right image that we need to be putting out into the world and i think for young women who are serious about pursuing a, a career in aviation that is not the image that we should um that we should propagate i definitely struggle with how much do you use your femininity to get ahead with something like that and how much of it is detrimental so i think i don't know like you got to do it right you know and i'm and i'm not sure if i've figured it out yet i'm i'm working on it So, Morgan, what was it like to interview Kat? She is really, really pretty and tall. And it was very intense sitting in a small studio with her. Um, but it was awesome. She gave me such wonderful answers to my questions. So what's our next piece about? 
Next up is a piece from our producer Karen Gardner. Karen's like really into food, like who grows it, where it came from. She even used to work at a farmers market. Confession: It's been forever since I've been to a farmers market. I know, me too. Anyway, she's going to talk about some pretty challenging stuff going on with farm workers in New York State. Sparrowbush Farm feels like what you'd picture when picking up a heavy butternut squash at a farmer's market. An idyllic upstate farm, chickens wandering around while fog burns off with morning heat to show the blue Catskills in the background. The farm is in southern Columbia County, about 100 miles north of New York City. Ashley Lair has run Sparrowbush Farm for six years. Baby Emile on her back, she gives me a tour. We grow little bits of greens. Ashley employs about five people every year, a little more in the summer, a little less in the winter. She sells vegetables, grains, and meat through a winter CSA, farmer's markets, wholesale, and to restaurants. I couldn't get Ashley to sit still, so we spoke while she cut pea shoots in the greenhouse. Ashley talked a lot about how she had excellent employers when she worked on farms and that they inspired her to be excited about creating good jobs on her farm. People are sticking around this farm, which is really awesome, and I just want to make sure that there's incentive for people to do that. Unfortunately, it's not easy to provide this incentive. Ashley has a lot of costs. Seeds, fuel, insurance. We have chicken feed, that's a big cost for us. We buy shavings for chicken. Farmers on the whole have a lot of costs. They invest in inputs, in infrastructure, in capital, in labor. Weird things like office supplies, envelopes, ink cartridges. All for a product that is highly dependent on weather and that we consumers hope to buy at a cheap price. Do you ever struggle to make payroll? Yes, definitely. The story of small farms struggling to get by is heard often, that consumers pay too little for food. We hear that the agricultural system is increasingly dominated by huge industrial, monocrop, heavily subsidized farms with dangerous pesticide use and terrible labor practices, as opposed to the pastoral organic farms selling directly to local consumers. While some of this dichotomy is rooted in fact, the reality of agricultural virtue and sin is much more complicated. This spring, on the eve of what would have been Cesar Chavez's 90th birthday, New York State farm workers, farm worker advocates, politicians, and allies rallied on the steps of New York City Hall to call for stronger labor law protections for New York State farm workers. Jose Ventura, an agricultural worker at the rally, tells me that when labor laws were enacted in the 1930s, agricultural workers were excluded from labor law protections. At the time, most agricultural workers were black, and white Americans did not see them as deserving of equal rights. He says it's time for equality. This rally is specifically focused on passing the Farm Worker Fair Labor Practices Act, a bill that was introduced years ago but has yet to pass the New York State Senate. 
The bill is like tar poured into a cracked and aging road. For every piece of labor legislation that reads, except farm workers, it fills in those rights. Collective bargaining, a day of rest every week, an eight-hour day, overtime pay, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, all the cracks filled in. Margaret Gray is a professor of political science and has extensively researched farm worker labor practices in the Hudson Valley. Dr. Gray's research reported that while farms in New York State tend to be smaller than in other areas of the country, farm workers in this state have been subject to many of the same abuses that occur on larger industrial farms, such as wage theft, long hours, rundown and crowded housing, and discrimination. If we talk about labor management from the farmer's perspective, one thing we need to keep in mind is that farmers in New York State can follow the letter of the law, but workers might be working under conditions that others see as highly exploited. So, for example, I've met workers who work six or six and a half days a week for 80 to 90 hours a week and they do so for straight minimum wage. She explains that workers in other industries would make time and a half for everything over 40 hours. In fact, there were some workers who told me that they got to work around 6 in the morning. They had an hour lunch break. They usually took dinner in the fields, had a small break for dinner, but that they were then in the packing house until 11 or midnight. And I didn't believe them. And so I actually drove by the farm a couple of times at those hours, and indeed, they were there at those hours. While Dr. Gray explains that farm workers' low wages and long hours subsidize the fruit and vegetable industry, farmers say their budgets just don't have wiggle room. They explain, if you increase the cost of farming, small farms in the state will go under, especially in competition with nearby states who don't have such legislation. Liz Henderson is a farmer and representative from the New York chapter of the Northeast Organic Farming Association, or NOFA. She says that while NOFA's members stand in solidarity with farm workers, New York State farms are in a fragile economic position and may not survive the rising costs such legislation would put into place. She says that we need to look at the bigger picture, which means that both farm workers and farmers need to be paid fairly for their work. Because on farms the size of mine and most of the organic farmers in the state, we're out there working right beside the people whom we hire. We're not absentee bosses. And as stakeholders in the New York food system, we would like to have a voice in the deliberations that decide on this legislation. Back at the rally, Jose Chapa says that he recognizes farmers' concerns. A lot of farmers are in fear that if this is enacted, Um, They will lose money. The state government won't support them. At the same time, every other industry requires basic labor protections for their workers. Jose works for Rural and Migrant Ministries. He organized this rally. 
He's the child of farm workers and a former farm worker himself. He says that this bill's passage is especially important now. The current political climate is becoming more tense for a lot of farm workers in the state. There's estimates of there being between 80,000 and 100,000 farm workers throughout the entire state of New York. A good number of them are undocumented. Non-citizen farm workers, whether undocumented or guest workers, are particularly subject to exploitation due to fear of speaking out against abuse. Jose says, we just don't know what's going to happen with national immigration policy in the next couple of months or years. Farm workers in New York State, especially undocumented workers, face a lot of instability. Passing this bill would help these communities have at least stability in the workplace, something that hasn't ever happened with this farm working community. The crowd is small but upbeat. As Cesar Chavez's prayer for farm workers is read into the square, everyone seems to hold their head up a little higher, ready to face the fight ahead. So back to the city, Hannah. Wait, is it Hannah or Hannah? Well, actually, it's pronounced Hannah. So, I mean, either is fine because they're both wrong. Okay, that strikes me as a very Finnish thing of you to say. Well, I don't even know what that means, but okay. (laughs) We've noticed that you have a pretty dry sense of humor. It's one of your best cultural imports, in my opinion. So just like... New York is defined by so many cultural imports, like the Polish people bringing bagels. We have great sushi from all of the Japanese influence. Tacos came from Mexico. The list goes on and on. Your piece shows some connections between New York and your home country. I moved to New York last year, and it was pretty confusing. New Yorkers have their own language and a way of doing things. It was really strange and quite intimidating to be dropped right in the middle of it. So, when I saw something familiar, I wanted to find out everything I could. It started in the kitchen I share with my landlord Jerry in the Bronx. Hey Jerry, how about up? There were these papers from the recent co-op meeting lying about on the table. At the top, the name of the cooperative, Varma Corporation. Varma is the Finnish word for secure or sure. When I asked Jerry about it, he told me that the president of the co-op board was, in fact, an elderly Finnish lady. So I arranged to meet her. So who built the Varma co-op? The Finnish people. They have... uh moved from Finland uh, to United States, uh, basically in Harlem. And then from Harlem to the Bronx. This was back in 1924. Finland, this small Scandinavian country, had gained its independence from Russia less than a decade before. Many Finns were traveling to America to make their fortunes. The story was that New York streets were paved with gold. Marjolaine Freyer, has lived in the Varma Co-op for over three decades and has been the president of the Co-op board for nearly 20 years. She moved in in 1980. 
Did you know at the time that it was a co-op found by Finnish people? Yes, I did. I heard the name of the co-op, so I, I knew it right away. There were no question about it. Yeah, I guess that the name is kind of a tip-off. <laughs> yes, sure it is, because it's Varma. <laughs> it's Varma, it's sure. So, a bunch of Finnish immigrants got together and bought a building in the Bronx, forming a co-op, a long time ago. That's nice. But there was more to the story. The Finns brought the co-ops to New York, uh, and, and particularly to Brooklyn. That's John Manbeck. He's the former Brooklyn Borough historian. He knows what Brooklyn was like at the turn of the 20th century. So at the very beginning, you know, there was so much land here that everybody would come over and build their own house. Uh, I mean, Brooklyn was a, a wooded community. This is all woods. Now, of course, it's one of the most densely populated areas in all of the United States. If you took the density of Brooklyn and applied it to all the United States, you could put everybody in the United States in the state of New Hampshire, uh, you know, because you'd be piling them up. So, when Brooklyn really started growing in the early 20th century, nobody could really afford a house by themselves. The Finns had a solution. Co-ops. The Finns brought a different type of, of living. I mean, the idea of a community with multiple families, it was very much a way of life. Nowadays, the cooperatives are the prevailing housing form of New York City. By some estimates, 75% of housing on Manhattan are co-ops. What that means is that people moving in pay for shares in a corporation rather than for their flats. Co-ops are usually a bit cheaper than condos and more sociable. The corporation has a board which decides on how the building is run. Rules about the color you're allowed to paint your door, about smoking on balconies, that kind of stuff. Still, co-ops are something completely unique to New York. Nowhere else in the United States do so many people choose to live in such codependency with their next door neighbors. The Finnish co-ops predated any written cooperative laws, or, to think of it, any discrimination laws. They could discriminate as much as they wanted to. And they did. If you weren't a Finn, you weren't moving in. By the 1950s, there were approximately 20,000 Finns living in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. They called it Fintown. This is the co-op where I was born. This one right here. Robert Sasta is 100% Finnish, but was born and raised in Brooklyn. He spent his childhood in Fintown in the 50s and 60s. He's a lawyer and looks like he's from a Netflix court drama, tall and serious. After a long day at court in Queens, Robert takes me for a drive through Sunset Park area. See, if you look on the map here, here's Sunset Park. So we have to, we would be... Here we are here, corner of 7th and 40th, that building. It was called Giusala, K-I-U-S-A-L-A. Giusala, tease or nuisance. Then there's hikipisara, a drop of sweat. Lovely image, right? And Köhäintalo, the poorhouse. Positive folk, those early Finns. Altogether, Sunset Park is surrounded by 24 old brownstones built by the Finnish immigrants. This has always been a busy residential street, Fifth Avenue, always. 
I think there was a movie theater on one corner that's not here anymore. I think further down over there. The oldest cooperative in New York is located on 43rd Street between 8th and 9th Avenues in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. It's called Alku, the beginning. The building next to it is called Alku Toinen, the second beginning. Imaginative and practical as always. It took us a while to find them. Oh, Alku? Oh, maybe down this street. I'm not sure which street it's on. I think it's the next street. No, that's not it. Will it say? Will it say Alku on it? Yeah. It says it on the top. We drive down 43rd Street slowly. There is this young blonde woman with a baby stroller just coming out of one of the buildings. Let's ask here. See, excuse me, where is Alku 1? Do you know? That building, 860s. That one? Yeah. Are you finished? Yeah, we're both, uh, we're the same co-op. Oh. Alku 2 and they're Alku 1. Uh, but are you finished? Any Finns left? What? Uh, there's one who just left. Um, oh. No Finns left. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, Thank bye you. Bye. So that's Alku Toinen. And here's Alku 1. This is where it all started. But the sign with the building name on it is gone. What happened to the sign? I'm disappointed. Excuse me. What happened to Alku One sign? It's no longer there. It used to be on the top on the arch. Yeah, I don't know. It's not there. <laughs> they don't care. They don't care at all. They don't care at all. Look, it's gone. Just that's just the number of the building, 816. And there it is, or isn't. The first generation of Finns is now long dead and their children, like Robert's own parents, moved away for work a long time ago. And now the last signs of the community are also disappearing. You can't really call this place Fintown anymore, but once it was a thriving community. At the heart of it was the Imatra Hall, the old community building. This is where the Finns came together to drink, dance and socialize. Now it is a Bonagan Christian church. Robert has lived most of his life elsewhere, but when we come to the old Finnish community hall, he walks straight in. See, I just walk in like I still own the place. The building has old creaky wooden floors and a narrow stage. It looks exactly like the halls of violin recitals and school dances I remember from my own school days in Finland. This used to, used to be the bar over here, and this used to be a dance floor like this. The kitchen was over there. The sauna was downstairs in the basement. It's a grungy sauna, it wasn't a big deal. It really wasn't, but it was still a sauna. As a child, Robert never questioned being American. He didn't even speak Finnish. I guess I'm what you call a real Finophile. I was always uh, proud of my background, but it never took any real significance until my late 30s. I became interested in learning the language and searching for my roots, and, and I started visiting Finland and finding my relatives. For a brief period in the 1990s, Robert and his twin brother actually became a bit of media celebrities in Finland. 
the prodigal sons, back from America after two generations. He now has over a hundred relatives in Finland. He sends all of them Christmas cards. But his real family was the community at the Imatra Hall. And then in summer, all the old timers especially hung out in the yard. Because where do you get this in Brooklyn? This doesn't exist. As a lawyer, he actually helped to sell the old community hall to the church. This was in the 1990s, when the Fintown community was already mostly gone. Although selling the Imatra Hall was necessary, I can see it still pains him. Just down the street from Imatra Hall, there is another Finnish community hall. It also has been converted to a church. They had two Finnish halls. One was the socialist hall, one was the uh, so-called church-going regular hall. Actually, quite a high number of the Finns who came to New York were communists, or at least leaning that way. Cause, you know, of course, if you're a communist living in a country sharing an 830-mile border with the Soviet Union, you want to move to America. My grandfather was actually with the IWW, the International Workers of the World. And that and my father would always say to us, remember that your grandfather, yes, he was a member of the IWW, but he was a socialist, not a communist. <laughs> it was an important distinction. I asked Maria Lena Freyer, my co-op president, if the founders of Varma Co-op were communists. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, I have, actually. I had old books in my... Uh, because I'm only second owner of the apartment. So uh, they were left there because they were written in Finnish and nobody else wanted them. Were they socialist books? Yes. So Finnish communists started the cooperatives in New York. You're welcome, McCarthy. I would say that the whole idea of the cooperative uh, as as far as Americans concerned, would have been socialistic. This is John Manbeck again. But I, I think you have a certain amount of, of uh, socialistic in Scandinavia and all over Europe, really. Either way, it all started here, in Sunset Park. The area where Fintown used to be is now mostly Chinese. The 8th Avenue is inhabited by dragon signs and walk restaurants. Neighborhoods change. Really, the only sign left of what used to be here is on the street sign on 40th Street. Some 20 years ago, the street was renamed Finlandia Street. How does it feel to be back here? You know, it's, it's an era gone by. It's about the best I could say. It's an era gone by. It'll never be repeated. I knew it was happening when it happened, but you know, now it's happened. It's it's gone. It's no longer. You never get it back. Yes, Fintown might be an era gone by, but it left something, something structural. As a Finn, I've always thought that there is not a whole lot we've provided to the cultural mix that is New York City. Yes, every trendy gym in the 80s had a sauna. But we never had that thing, that bagel falafel, something we could look at proudly and go, yes, that's ours. Turns out, we kinda do. Back home in the Bronx, 
Marja-Leena follows the tradition, keeping the idea of the Finnish co-op alive. How is it being the president of a Bronx co-op? There's a lot of work, but um, somebody have to do it. That's a very Finnish attitude. <laughs> well, what else can you do? Are you proud to be a Finnish president of a Finnish co-op? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm actually very proud of it. Nowadays, most new housing developments in New York are for condos. Maybe in the decades to come, cooperatives will lose ground to different forms of housing. Still, for now, it's a Finnish way of living for New Yorkers. Hannah, Robert is incredible. What was he like? I know, right? I actually got to see him at court. He was representing this old Korean-American lady. And he's a total hero. So we have one more piece in this episode. It's from our producer, Ryan Swikert. It's about a man who has found an extraordinary way to spend his time. So tell me... Tell me what your name is. All right, should I use the ladies and gentlemen... This is Johnny Knuckles. Uh, you can just like just introduce yourself and. Okay, my full name is Johnny DiVincenzo, aka Johnny Knuckles, the Italian steel puncher. I punch steel, and I'm not kidding you. I punch steel. For more than 40 years, Johnny's been hitting steel with his bare fists. Today we're taking a walk over to a park in Harlem. It's cold and it's rainy, but that doesn't really matter. Because today Johnny's going to spend an hour beating up on a pole. When I'm hitting that pole, and if I do too much, it's going to hurt the fucking pole. And I really don't want to hurt the fucking pole. Johnny is 82 years old. He's a short 5'2". He's wearing a hoodie that says Johnny DiVincenzo, Italian steel puncher on the back. These things would normally grab your attention, but there's something else about Johnny that stands out even more. When we cross the playing field, these two guys come over to talk to him. You ain't got the shoes like this. Johnny's knuckles. They're huge and swollen, like chestnuts he's squeezed under the skin of his hands. That ain't nothing. I'm gonna hit that steel. Stick around. When we get to his favorite steel pole, this orange support beam, I understand why. There's a mark worn into the paint, about the size and shape of a fist. What's that? That's chips that came off the paint since I've been hidden down here five years. Are we ready? That's steel, right? I want you to make sure that's steel. Uh, let me knock on it, let me see. Yeah, that feels like steel to me. First, Johnny's just tapping the steel with these little jabs, but then... Johnny's hitting the steel very, very hard. It's not easy to watch a person do this without reflexively grabbing for your own knuckles. You almost want to pull them away. But as Johnny slams into the steel with his hands, he smiles. He says it doesn't hurt. Over the years, He's just gotten numb. Johnny comes down to the park a few times a week to hit steel, 
and so far he hasn't broken his hands. As weird as it's gonna sound, this is a skill. He's built it up over years of punching, starting when he was an inmate at Sing Sing Prison. The reason I started hitting steel was I used to smoke at that time, and I needed cigarette money. Out in the yard at Sing Sing, inmates would bet on who could hit steel the hardest. And because Johnny trained for it, punching wood beams and brick walls to build up his hands, he would always win. If you never hit steel, you're liable to break a finger. You may not be able to use your fist anymore. In the beginning, I used to come to tears. It hurt so much. And then I get blood from the little mini cuts that I was getting on my fist. Until one day I woke up and there was no feeling in my goddamn fist. <laughs> Johnny was 29 when he went to Sing Sing and 43 when he left. In jail, he had nothing but time to toughen up his hands and to think about the past. When Johnny was just a baby, before his first birthday, he was taken from his family and placed in foster care. But Johnny's foster mother was kind. She treated him like her son, and she really cared for him. I went to parochial school, took piano. My nana owned her own house. She sent me to school by rights. They should have never broke up that house. When Johnny was eight years old, the state returned custody to his biological father. His father was Italian and barely spoke any English. He was a man that Johnny just didn't know. My father, he was like a monster in the father. He got him strapped like a, a car pedal and started wagging me with that son of a bitch. Johnny started running away, and pretty soon he was stealing to get by. He did everything he could to avoid going home. He fell in with the local street gangs, and by age 14, he was stealing cars. You know why I stole cars? I didn't have any place to sleep, and I had to sleep in the car. And that's how I was living when I was a little kid. Around the neighborhood, Johnny got this reputation as a kid who could be trusted. By the time he was 15, he was working as a gun runner for the Brooklyn Mafia. At 16, he got caught with one of the guns. He spent three years in juvenile detention, and when he came out, he was determined to stay out of trouble. And I got these odd jobs. Way there, buzz boy. But starting over wasn't easy. Old habits were hard to break. I had gotten a rifle, just keeping me company. The rifle was, and the bullets were. Johnny got a job working as a chef in a kitchen. In 1964, when he was 29 years old, he was staying in Brooklyn with his friends, Joseph and Angela, and their two kids. According to newspapers, they threw Johnny out of the house when some items went missing. Later that night, Johnny came back. I don't know what the fuck causes some quake in my brain. Because what you see now, what I'm going to tell you, was not premeditated. I didn't go there to kill her or her husband. I went there and I shot up the house with the rifle. Some uncontrollable took hold of my very body and brain, 
and I fired them shots. Standing at the front of the house, Johnny shot at the doors and windows. He fired 10 shots into the basement, and then he walked down the street to a local bar. That's where police found him, dazed and holding the rifle. And they come in. They said, what do you think you're doing over there? I said, well, I'm still waiting for somebody. Yeah, we're waiting for you. You're under arrest. Put your fucking hands out. Do you know you just shot a kid up the block? Newspapers reported that when the shooting started, Angela ran to the basement to try to protect her infant daughter. As she lifted the baby from her crib, Johnny fired into the basement, striking the two-year-old twice. She died in her mother's arms. Oh, when he said that, I really went fucking nuts. That's when they, they took me to Kings County Psychiatric. The feeling was, I wanted to kill myself. The feeling was, what the fuck did I do? I realized that at that time, while in the hospital being treated, that I committed that awful fucking thing. Johnny was convicted of murder in the second degree. In 1966, he arrived at Sing Sing. And maybe he just needed something to keep his hands busy. But out in the yard, he started doing painful things to win bets. But Johnny kept punching. And after a while, it was about more than just winning cigarettes. He said that as he got closer to parole, he wanted to have something to show for his time in prison. He wanted to be something other than a criminal. He wanted to be the only person who could punch steel. After 14 years, Johnny got released early for good behavior. But out in the free world, he returned to his old ways. During an armed robbery, he shot an off-duty cop. When he went back to jail, he was just approaching middle age. By the time he got out in 2007, he was an old man. He'd spent most of his life behind bars. Do you think about it still? I do when I pray. What do you think about? About the, uh, the wrongness of my act. And I know God didn't know what I did was wrong. I had no reason. Johnny doesn't hold a grudge for all the years he lost in jail. When he got out, he changed his last name, his father's name. But there are parts of Johnny's old life that are harder to shed. A few times a week, he still walks down to the park to punch the steel poles. So why, why are you hitting the steel? Why are you still doing it? I have a psychological outlet by doing that. Now, let me ask you, what do you think of me sitting here all afternoon with you? And how do you feel about my character? I think that you've lived a couple of different lifetimes. You're right. And I think that 
I think that you're a very different person today than the person who shot up that house. In a real way, mate. Does doing this physical exercise like keep your mind off of things? When I do my exercises, whether I'm hitting steel or just walking down the street, I don't get a picture of me shooting up that house anymore. No. I get now something that was committed, something wrong that I did, but now I want to make the difference with my new life. Johnny lives in Castle Gardens, an apartment complex that houses aging felons and single moms. Around the building, he's the resident grandfather. He's quick to loan someone money, to buy someone dinner, or buy treats for the kids next door. There's unfortunate people, I, I have to give them something. So uh, that really makes me feel good. Johnny's neighbors check in on him too. They invite him over for dinner and they keep him company. He's even become a godfather to one of the kids in the building. Life can be so strange. For 70 years, Johnny was on his own in the world. But here, in this unusual place, he finally has a family. When Johnny's out hitting steel, he feels the shock of each punch. The vibrations run up his arm and through his body. And as he gets into a rhythm, his face becomes calmer. Sometimes people stop to watch. Sometimes kids stare at him in amazement. Out here, people call him Knuckles. He's the guy who punches steel. <laughs> Why don't we head back? Because I got to get going too. All right. Can I get one more shot? Yeah, get one more good one. Get a good one in there. All right, buddy. This episode of the NYU Journalism Podcast was produced by me, Morgan Sykes, and Hanna Segeinen, as well as Karen Kortner and Ryan Zweikert. That's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>